Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. The 2024 Missouri legislative session is right around the corner, but there's a lot of uncertainty whether lawmakers will do much of substance, especially with a critical election cycle looming. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, State Representative Ian Mackey of Clayton breaks down the big issues before his colleagues when they return to Jefferson City in January, and whether Missouri Democrats can withstand an election season with a lot of contentious primaries. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, in North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. we got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. Sponsored by the Sue and Lynn Schneider Charitable Fund. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. I'm flying solo today, and our special guest today is the Democratic representative from Missouri's 99th House District. Is that correct? That's correct. And who are you? Ian Mackey. Welcome back to the show. This is the first time, though, under a different numbered House district because yes. uh, redistricting did actually change you change things quite a bit for you. Is that fair to say? Uh, actually, it didn't change too much other than changing um, my residence. I was drawn out of my district. So to that extent, you could say things changed quite a bit. But it's about 70 percent the same district. I lost my uh, the eastern border, U-City, Richmond Heights, and I gained all of that Warson Woods on the western side. But I kept Clayton and Ledoux throughout. Um, so we're in an odd period in Missouri legislative and uh, politics. We are not quite in 2024, but it kind of feels like the election and the session are like breathing down our necks. So I, I got to be really candid with you. Um, I have never felt that expectations were any lower for a legislative session than 2024. Like the top issue that people seem to be bracing for are measures to make the Constitution harder to amend, but it's unclear whether that will even pass, as we'll get to, like the motivations behind it may be completely uh, irrelevant. Um, do you share my pessimism that this election year session will amount to very much? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think most of us. That's certainly the conventional thinking going into session. Um, and it's typical, of course, of election years. But it seems to be that we just continue barreling down the same track and we just are not quite sure where the bottom is. We, we keep thinking we fit the bottom and we just keep finding more space. So, you know, the FRA is up again this year. And, that you know, a couple of years ago, that required a special session because we weren't able to get that completed in the in the general session. So, 
you know, that's going to be a huge fight. Um, obviously, the initiative petition reform will be a huge fight. And like you mentioned, it has to be approved by voters, which isn't happening across the country. And is, I think, unlikely to happen here as well. Um, we'll see tons of culture war fights because, of course, primary season is where most of us get elected. Most of us aren't elected in the November election. We're elected in August. So we'll see tons of culture war fights between folks in our chamber who are challenging each other for state senate or trying to move up the ranks. We'll see folks uh, having proxy fights and posturing for Jay Ashcroft or for Bill Eigel, respectively, or for Mike Kehoe and trying to to score them some points along the way. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be even more of a circus, I think, than usual. I, I, on the culture war issues, this this was the year that lawmakers ended up passing uh, a, a bill, which is now law, that bars transgender minors from accessing things like hormone therapy or puberty blockers and also uh, gender transition surgery. I, I, I talked to a number of transgender Missourians over the summer, and I asked them a question. Do you think that they will, they being the legislature, will try to pass restrictions on transgender adults next? And all of them told me yes even though a lot of Republicans have told me, no, they're not interested in doing that. What's kind of your thought about whether that would be a serious topic of discussion next year? I'm bracing for the worst. I'm bracing for that to be a serious topic of discussion. I, my hope and expectation, truly my expectation is that we will not go that far for the reasons you mentioned. Our uh, House leaders, John Patterson, who will be the incoming speaker, floor leader, um, you spoke with him recently and he said the same. Um, and, and I hear that. I mean, we heard that from Jay Ashcroft even. I mean, he gave an interview over the summer that I listened to. Um, you know, I, I think that the, you know, the idea of small government is letting adults make their own decisions. The problem is what frustrates me to no end is that um, lawyers for higher ed institutions, leaders in higher ed institutions, lawyers for our K-12 schools, folks who are reading more into the laws that we pass than are actually on paper. The words on the paper are all that matter, and folks are reading intent into these conversations. They're reading um, further down the road what the legislature might do into these conversations, Wash U ending its care, Mizzou ending its care, um, uh, districts around the state taking books off their shelves, um, folks reacting to the political climate and the political temperature rather than the actual legislation we pass and what's on paper is incredibly frustrating. I think what you're referring to there is that the aforementioned bill I talked with had what was called a grandfather clause, which meant if you were taking hormone therapy right. in particular, or you were taking puberty blockers, you could still take them um, after this law was passed. Now, I haven't read the specific reasons why WashU or Mizzou decided to not go through with that. I think it has a lot to do with they fear that there could be increased legal liability for them down the road based off language in the which bill. Is, which is ridiculous, Can which just, is completely why, why unwarranted. Do you, why do you think that's ridiculous? I mean, we went through great – our state senators, our Democratic state senators specifically, went through great pains and immense hours overnight, 3 and 4 and 5 in the morning, to get that language in there so that kids who are currently receiving care could continue to receive care only to have – Lawyers say, well, I don't know, there, there might be too much liability here, and this is the way the conversation's headed, and we're getting too much scrutiny and spotlight, so let's just go ahead and pull back and not provide care to anyone. That is just so incredibly frustrating, and that's, I think that's really the biggest consequence of having a state that's controlled so much by one party. Um, the, the, the fact that there's a supermajority of Republicans in both houses and in the governor's office leads to that sort of mentality in those institutions. The reason why I broached the subject about transgender adults is this was not a philosophical hypothetical situation. Missouri was on the precipice of basically banning gender-affirming care for adults because of Attorney General Bailey's emergency rules. It, I think it was frozen maybe a day before they were supposed to go into effect. And these were really 
really harsh rules. Like you could not get hormone therapy or gender transition surgery unless you did a number of hours of talk therapy, you were screened for autism, and you had to have mental health conditions, quote unquote, treated and resolved. I think the reason why the people I talked with are very worried that those could be introduced in legislative form is they see a lot of these issues kind of egged on by conservative media outlets that run a lot of really negative coverage about transgender people. And it's not too far out of the realm of possibility that those outlets could run a lot of content that take aim at care for adults next, and that causes legislators to be reactive. Right. What, what do you think about that? No, it's not out of the realm of possibility at all. And folks are right to be worried and concerned. But we are a state who stopped this for five years. When every other red state around us passed these bans, they passed wide sweeping bans, and they passed them five years before we passed an incredibly pared down ban that had a lot of exceptions in it, including the grandfather clause that you mentioned. Our legislature, I think, represents, honestly, the sort of the community at a whole on this issue. I think you might find uh, on average, maybe a majority of folks whose children aren't transgender, who don't have any interaction with this other than what they might see in media, who think, gosh, I don't think kids ought to have these drugs, okay, for whatever reason. The problem is there are maybe 20% of folks who this is their top issue. We've got legislators who, that for whatever reason, and they're part of the historic, uh, um, you know, t- uh, part of this party that's opposed LGBT rights for decades, for a generation. And so they make it their issue. They get the microphones. They're the ones who are quoted and, and in print, and they are the ones who are getting votes in these August primaries to drive the agenda forward. But I still think, on balance, most of us understand that that's an extreme position. So let's move on to what you called initiative <laughs> petition reform. I don't call it that. <laughs> right. I think you've, you've heard that. I call it efforts to make the Constitution more difficult to amend or raise the threshold to pass constitutional amendments. I, I, I know all the arguments against this, for, primarily from your side, that, you know, direct democracy is good. This is allowed, like, for a lot of left of center priorities to be passed. But one thing that I think is undeniably true is that the IP process absolutely has been used by well-moneyed special interest groups to circumvent the legislature. We've seen that with marijuana. We've seen that with a lot of other things. I'm not sure if that is a reason why you should, you know, gut the initiative petition process, but I do think that that is a reality that I think people are not willing to acknowledge. Is there any way to, like, make the system less oriented toward people with lots in groups with lots of money, or is that just the realities of campaigning, and that's going to be the the status quo if the initiative petition process remains the same. The money of it doesn't. The money part doesn't frustrate me as much as just the politics of it. I, I'm incredibly frustrated from the initiative petition process. It's a double-edged sword because we've gotten those left-wing policies passed that you've mentioned, but now those are issues that Crystal Quaid, for instance, can't go out and run on to say she's going to do. Uh, folks get to have their cake and eat it too. She can't go out there and say we're going to legalize marijuana. Why? Because it's already legalized. She can't go out there and say we're going to expand Medicaid. Why? Because we already expanded Medicaid. So she's trapped in a box where people have gotten these left-wing things that our party puts forward over and over and over again. Union rights. Folks have these things protected because we were able to go to the ballot and get them protected, which great for those issues. But we are a a representative democracy, right? I mean, we're elected as politicians for a reason. So to have this giant process that just circumvents that on key issues that would otherwise divide us apart and get folks thinking about who they're voting for and why, that part really frustrates me. I also think that we also have to acknowledge that for a lot of 
left-leaning initiatives. I'm not going to count marijuana in this. I think marijuana is not as left-leaning as people think. <laughs> I think a lot of Republicans probably, uh, probably have, right about that. have enjoyed <laughs> cannabis since it's been legalized. But I do think that there are some instances where the initiative petition process gets used particularly by Democrats as turnout mechanisms. For example, we never see initiative petitions to raise the minimum wage if there's not a Senate race or a governor's race. We didn't see it in 2014 when there was just the uncontested Tom Schweik auditor's race. So I do think that I understand why people are, are kind of cynical about this. But what, what what's kind of your thought about the initiative petition process being used as a turnout mechanism as opposed to like urgently getting policy initiatives passed? I think the turnout makes sense. I mean, if you if you want to raise the minimum wage, do you want to you know raise it where you can maybe bring some more folks out to vote for a Democratic candidate, or do you want to put it in a different year? Obviously, you want to try to put those two together. Um, I, I, I honestly don't know to the extent to which that actually works. I mean, maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. I don't think it actually. That, I mean, I'm just thinking of every you know union member I know in Jefferson County who's going to vote to you know <laughs> raise the minimum wage and protect their union rights and then vote for Donald Trump again. So uh, I'm not sure to what extent that that actually plays out. Okay, so let's. Let's talk about what I was alluding to earlier. Speaker Plocker, on the last day of session, I've, I've mentioned this on this show like 60 times now because it was so memorable, basically said what many people had been thinking all along, that the reason why a lot of members of the legislature want to make it harder to amend the Constitution is they want that type of initiative to go on the August ballot. They want it to pass. And then if something legalizing abortion gets put on the November ballot, it would need 57% or 60% or 90 House mm -hmm. districts or something like that. Okay. I mean, I appreciate Speaker Plocker's candor on that. Well, now there's open talk about if, if something related to abortion gets enough signatures, they actually want to put it on the August ballot now because they don't want the turnout bump. Right. But what I've said, and I was talking with Secretary Ashcroft about this, if you do that, the uh, initiative petition threshold raise has no impact on that anymore. Right. And it really brings into question why even spend a lot of time on that if the of one of the core reasons behind it kind of gets tossed out the window. What, what do you think about that? I mean, I think they're stuck in the position where they've just made this such a, um, a large pillar of their platform. It's just hard to let go of. I think it's just as simple as that. I mean, this has dominated the first half of our legislative sessions in the House and, and dominated deals made in the Senate for the last several sessions. I mean, these, this is just sort of a, a huge political football, and it's, and it's one of their biggest cards in their deck, and they just don't know how to get rid of it. Um, and so they know it's, a few, I think almost all of them know it's a futile effort. Um, they know there's probably no point to it. Um, it's, it's probably not going to affect the abortion measure, even if they're on the same ballot. It's not going to affect the abortion measure. And so, but the, but it's just it's just this entity that's dom it's just this you know thing that's dominated so much space that how do you get rid of it? So I mentioned Speaker Plocker. He has been under fire from his own party recently um, for a, a number of reasons. He tried to get like a new constituent service management system in place, which uh, the House clerk, Dana Miller, well, strenuously pushed back against. There's this controversy about how he got reimbursements from the House for travel that had already been reimbursed by his campaign. He has since paid it back. It, 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 at this point, it does not seem like his caucus is going to oust him similarly to national uh, politics. But it, I've seen your tweets. You've actually <laughs> been kind of a plocker defender on this. And, and frankly, House Democrats have not really 
done what national Democrats did with Kevin McCarthy and tried to throw him under the bus. Yeah. What, what's with that? Well, I'm interested in this. <laughs> for, well, for one, our, uh, I, don't, I don't know whether I'm a fireside person or not. I don't know whether I'd like that service or whether I wouldn't. I don't, I've never used it. I don't have any really clue what it's like. But I can tell you, I can tell you our current constituent management service is garbage. Uh, it does not work well. It's, it's, not a, it's a clunky, unworkable system. I will say that. Um, and when it comes to the other stuff, look, I, you know, yeah, we know what he did. It was wrong. Uh, did he have the intent? I don't know. I won't get into it. But all I'll say is, you know, Donald Trump is trying to lead their party with 91 felony indictments against him. And, and they're all lining up behind him. So it's weird to me why a few people would come out and say, oh, well, you know, we're going to abandon um, our, our Speaker of the House because of a few thousand dollars that, that you know, he skimmed off the top a little bit. And now now we're going to kick him out um, when when their nominee, soon to be nominee for president, former president, has 91 felony indictments. I mean, I think drawing out that hypocrisy. Is, is, is a worthwhile effort. I do think that you really do have to, like, investigate whether he knew he was had already reimbursed himself with the campaign or not. Now, I don't know how you prove that. You can't go into Dean Plocker's mind and understand right. his motivations. But if there is evidence of that, frankly, that's a crime. That's theft. So I, 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 I agree with you. Like, you need to, like, sort the facts out on that right. point. But you went a step further. You actually said that, like, Plocker has been pretty good for Democrats. Like, can you explain that? Because that seems yeah. kind of odd. Well, I mean, what do I want? A speaker, Doug Ritchie? I mean, Doug Ritchie is his chief opponent right now. Maisie Boyd? Do I want a speaker, Maisie Boyd? I mean, my gosh, would I rather have Speaker Dean Plocker or Speaker Doug Ritchie or Maisie Boyd? I, that is a clear cut answer for me. Would I rather have a speaker, Crystal Quaid? Of course, that's not going to happen. But, you know, Dean Dean has, you know, sent our bills to committees, worked with us, brought things to the floor, had discussions, um, you know, reached out to the other side. Um, you know, it's, it's not been an impossible working situation. And he was never somebody that that really pushed some of these culture war issues that we've been talking about, pushed some of these huge uh, wedge issues that we've been talking about. Obviously, as a speaker, he's got this, you know, he's got to satisfy a lot of people in a broad tent, but he's never been somebody who spent his time focusing on that. He's, like you said, a, a moderate conservative lawyer from West County. I, You know, if they're going to pick a speaker, that's who I want it to be. I'm looking actually ahead to 2025 or 2024 if Plocker gets ousted early. I actually think a more likely scenario is John Patterson would become speaker early. Or there could be like a placeholder in 2024, and then he becomes speaker in 2025. You alluded to my interview with him on the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. My takeaway was he is a lot more moderate in temperament and on issues than a lot of members of his caucus. Do you think that he's going to have some issues like holding his caucus together when he becomes speaker, given that like he is just genuinely not as conservative as them? Oh, sure. I mean, I think Dean's gone through that. I think, I, I mean, even, I mean, Rob and Elijah went through that, and they were certainly <laughs> further right on the spectrum, I think, than Dean and John are, but even they went through that. I mean, it's a large group of people. I mean, you've got over 100 people representing, you know, really diverse viewpoints, some of which are just incredibly extreme. Like I said, you know, members who think that our meat is poisoned, and we've got to do something about that. I mean, I don't know how you deal with that. I, I don't know how you <laughs> reason with that sort of point of view and try to work your way through. I mean, I I guess you give that person a bill hearing and, and call it a day. But I mean, it's it's or give them a microphone and let them say what they want. Uh, it's a I don't know how they do it, honestly. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Ian Mackey. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. 
We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Ian Mackey. He is a Democrat from Clayton. You're, yes. you're no longer I'm a no Richmond Heights No longer after five years. Nope. <laughs> it, 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 it is sad, but uh, really... Shouldn't Clayton and Richmond Heights just be one city anyways? Absolutely. We need to get rid of 88 municipalities. Look, we need to be one St. Louis. Let's get into the better discussion Better discussion right now, Jason. Let's do it. Uh, I'm going to save that for Councilwoman uh, Lisa Clancy, <laughs> okay. who will be a guest on the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. So let's talk about the elections. And I'm going to kind of go in order, which I think the discussion will be most interesting. Democratic Senate primary now is between Lucas Kuntz and Carla May. Are, I, and I have a lot of respect for Senator May. Like, she's my Thanks. state senator. She has great political skills. But the only way I see her being a factor is if she can raise money. And that has not materialized yet. If it's her versus Lucas Kuntz with this current trajectory, I think Kuntz is pretty heavily favored. Is that kind of your feeling as well? Maybe. I mean, I certainly think, you know, from the money standpoint, you're right. But I mean, look at her race against Jake Hummel. I mean, that was not a race that money didn't determine that race. Um, I think a a lot of things did. But I think primarily it was the same year Lisa Clancy ran against Pat Dolan. I think the fact that she was a a woman candidate post-Trump in a Democratic primary, I think, was a huge bump for her. Um, And I I don't know how many more election cycles we'll see that play out. I don't know what sort of, you know, when people pull their ballot and they see Carla and they see Lucas, if if they just pivot towards uh, the feminine name. That's happened over and over and over again. So I'm not sure. I wouldn't count her out. I have noticed since 2022, there has been a lot of people that like Lucas Kuntz, and he has a lot of boisterous supporters. But I think just the fact that Trudy Bush Valentine got into that race and the fact that he was not unopposed this time signals to me there are not there are some Democrats that do not want him to be the nominee. Now, if it remains Lucas Kuntz, Carla May, do you think that Carla May could be the beneficiary of some of the anti-Lucas Kuntz money or organization and she may become a more formidable candidate by osmosis? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, a certainly a real possibility. Yeah. Well, let's move to the other newer primary, which is governor. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Camera, a businessman from Springfield, recently got into the race against House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid. Um, I, I think that Quaid has to take this seriously. Hamra could clearly self-fund, similarly to Trudy Bush Valentine. Um, but it does seem, from the outside looking in, that a lot of institutional elements of the Missouri Democratic Party are behind Quaid. A lot of labor unions are supporting her. A lot of uh, legislators, I think, including yourself, That's right. are supporting her as well. Does that is that going to be enough for her to win a primary? against a self-funder who may outspend her in a primary. Yes, it's not about money. This just Races just aren't about money right now. Um, th- that is not going to be the determinative factor uh, probably in Lucas's race. It's certainly not going to be the determinative factor in this governor's race. Um, you know, you only get eight years to serve in the state house, and Crystal will have spent six of those leading our caucus. Um, you know, it, the, being leader of the caucus used to be something you did in your last two years. Um, Crystal came in her sophomore year and said, I want to do it. She took on somebody who was in their last two years. She got it. And 
she's faced no opposition for her last two elections to that post because she is so good at making decisions. She's so good at doing what we expect from somebody in an executive office, in an office like the governorship, to say, I know what decisions to make. I know how to make them quickly. I know how to make them effectively. And I know how to make them while I'm thinking about how many people they affect and how. And that's what she does on a daily basis. Mike Hammer can talk all day long about the businesses he owns um, and, and talk all day long about the, the thousands of people who are a minimum wage working in his restaurants. But what he can't talk about is his ideas for when he's governor. He's been asked repeatedly day after day now, what, what are your ideas on education? What are your ideas on gun violence? What are your ideas on, on any number of issues? And he's told reporter after reporter or small group after small group, I don't know yet, I don't know yet, I don't know yet. So I have no idea why he's running. Well, okay. I think there's two lines of thought. One, that primaries are not great for Democrats because, as we'll talk about, their their pathway to statewide victory is already very narrow to begin with. And a primary would just fritter away Quaid's somewhat limited resources. The other, the other end of that uh, spectrum is that primaries are actually good because it forces candidates to actually like campaign really hard before August. And it could make Quaid more well-known in places where she's not well-known. Where do you kind of fall on that continuum? I'm choosing to look at the glass half full. <laughs> I'm choosing to, you know, I do think she'll benefit from, I mean, uh, she's from Springfield, which is a double-edged sword, right? I mean, she is from the part of our state where we need more Democrats to be from, where we, especially if we want to win statewide races. She's from Greene County, where Claire McCaskill will tell you over and over and over and over and over again, here's the percent you need to get in Greene County to win statewide. Well, that's her home base, and that's that's bodes really well for us in a general election. But in a primary, now, my camera's from Springfield, too, so we don't have somebody from St. Louis or Kansas City swooping in to try to, you know, soak up the name ID. But yeah, no, she needs to, she obviously has to get her name in front of more people in Kansas City and St. Louis, especially in an August Democratic primary. And I think having an opponent will help her do that. So, okay, let's just say Quaid wins this primary. She'll either have to face Mike Kehoe, Jay Ashcroft, or Bill Eigel. Now, the conventional wisdom is that Democrats should be rooting for Bill Eigel to win because they feel like he is the weakest candidate of the three. But I'm also getting a sense, because I talked with Representative Quaid right after she, she announced, she's bracing for a contest with Jay Ashcroft. And it's it's either because the polling shows that he's well ahead or, in, or kind of alluding to this idea that he is a weaker candidate than Kehoe is. Mm-hmm. Is that actually true, though? Like, Ashcroft won his two statewide elections by with 60% of the vote. He has, like, Huge name recognition. Him being extremely conservative on issues doesn't seem like it would be a negative in a conservative state. Why Why would you want to run against Ashcroft over Kehoe if you're Crystal Quay? Well, past elections are never prologue for future elections. Every election is a contrast between you and your opponent in that election, period. Robin Carnahan got the most Democrats, got the most votes as Democratic Secretary of State in 08 and tanked in the 2010 Senate race, right? Like, it's it's the contrast in that, in that election. So, you know, kudos to Ashcroft for his votes for Secretary of State. I think that means absolutely nothing for his race for governor. Um, and I do think he's weaker than Bill Eigel. He's... Not as charismatic. He's harder to talk to. He's a strange person, if I'm being honest with you. He's just a strange individual. Um, Bill Eigel is an extreme individual with an insane philosophy that I don't think really is, frankly, that different from Jay Ashcroft's. But he has the ability to actually hold a, hold a conversation, I think, in a way that Jay Ashcroft is, frankly, incapable of. So, uh, you know, I, I whether it's one of the two of them, I think it bodes well for, for Crystal. Obviously, the conventional wisdom is Kehoe's a harder candidate to beat. I don't think that's impossible. But certainly, I think if she's running against one of the crazy dudes, certainly it's going to be a lot easier. Is the... Feeling that Kehoe is harder to beat just because he has, he's more moderate. 
he or that, that he has more crossover appeal. Or, or frankly, this this doesn't get brought up a lot, but he has name recognition too. If right. you went to Mizzou right. <laughs> at any point in the 2000s and you turned on a TV, you heard you have that Mid Missouri loves a Mike Kehoe Mike deal, Kehoe deal jingle in yep. your brain because yep. you were in Central Missouri. I went during to Westminster College. I so, listened to Mike Kehoe deal ads every day. But yep. so I I think that the general con, the general conventional wisdom is if he wins that primary, it's going to be very difficult for Quaid to win. What's your feeling on that? Uh, TBD. The jury's still out on that. Um, I don't know. You know, it depends on how strongly we're able to connect issues that people care about to the candidates who are representing those issues. Uh, you know, Laura Kelly won re-election in Kansas. Laura Kelly was a very liberal state senator with a long voting record on issues that people said were unpopular in Kansas, and she didn't just get elected once, she got elected twice. But, you know, and if you're talking about Kehoe specifically, though, I think, you know, he gives the appearance, certainly, that he's more moderate because of his demeanor, his calm nature. He doesn't yell. He doesn't, you know, uh, throw inflammatory rhetoric around on a regular basis. But if he picks up the pen and is governor of the state of Missouri, I'm thinking he's signing the same things that Jay Ashcroft and Bill Eigel would sign. And that's what folks have to keep in mind. All right. Let's move to the most contentious race maybe ever. I know. Okay. I'm prone to, I'm prone to hyperbole a lot. Okay. I, and I, and I, and I love hyperbole. I just did this lengthy story about Cori Bush and Wesley Bell, where I primarily talked with first district voters. I, t- I got to talk with both of them. I'm very grateful for their time. I have never in my entire political reporting career felt so much passion, anger, rage, um, enthusiasm, uh, toward two candidates like Cory Bush and Wesley Bell. Um, like, not even close. Like, the people that are angry at Cory Bush are enraged at her, especially over positions on Israel-Palestine. The people that feel betrayed by Wesley Bell for running against Cory Bush feel genuinely hurt and betrayed, and they frankly see this what he's doing is opportunistic, and they they also don't disagree with what Cory Bush is doing and saying on, on Israel-Palestine. Because you live in the first district. I, I do. do not. I have no <laughs> skin in this game thanks to the legislature drawing my house in Mo 2 for some reason that I cannot to this day. Well, I mean, sure. I know why they did that, but I don't want to get down a redistricting rabbit hole. How do you see this race playing out? Because I could see this race becoming very, very ugly, but the stakes feel a lot higher than other races I've seen. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I think there are, as you mentioned, and like the people you talk to, this issue is front and center for a lot of people. I don't think it's front and center for the majority of voters who are going to show up and vote in that race. I don't know how long and to what extent this issue will dominate this race. Certainly, this seems to be Israel-Palestine. That's right. what we're talking about. That's the issue we're talking about. Right. Seems obviously to be a catalyst for Wesley getting in this, into this race and other people thinking about getting into this race. But to what extent that will actually dominate uh, the decision making of folks in the ballot box in this race, that that I that I don't know. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've experienced the same uh, talking to constituents in my district, the same uh, extreme feelings on each side. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, I, it's for, for good reason. I mean, these are two candidates. What, whether you like Cori Bush or Wesley Bell or not, these are the two people that are seen as the biggest political success stories from the Ferguson protest right. movement. Right. And now they're running against each other and they're pitting people that were part of like the same coalition against each other. Too. Right. Right. How damaging do you think that is going to be long term for broader Democratic efforts? You know, it's it's not just the issue of Israel-Palestine, right, that we we're like we were talking about. I mean, Cory Bush's vote against the infrastructure bill 
I mean, how many folks in St. Louis County uh, and in the city of St. Louis uh, are sick and tired of watching our congressperson be a roadblock to our Democratic president and to the millions and millions and millions of dollars he wants to send to our state to fix our roads and bridges? Uh, that is that is an, an, an untenable position from my perspective and from Wesley's perspective. Um, I think that's a good reason to run against Cory Bush. I think there the, there are a number of reasons why I would rather have someone in office other than Cory Bush uh, or somebody who, you know, there, there's lots of reasons why somebody would want that. Um, I think it, to some extent, the, the issue, the argument between Israel and Palestine, well, for some, it truly is about that issue, especially uh, Jewish folks who, you know, know any number of people who are in Israel, know people who have been taken hostage, have connections and relationships over there. But for a lot of other folks, it's sort of a proxy war for just sort of the frustration um, between, you know, look at the Donald Trump playbook, pitting two groups against each other in order to have a fight while he sits back and watches. And we see, unfortunately, we're going to see people exploit that. Of course, we're going to see folks on the other side exploit this race between Wesley and Corey. That's an unfortunate, uh, you know, um, collateral damage of having this primary. But I think it's still a primary that needs to happen. Uh, And uh, here's my my take on this about Israel-Palestine's effect on this race in particular. I do not think it's going to be a determinative issue for several reasons. I, I, I have not seen polling on this, but I did ask black voters specifically in my story, do black voters who are not super politically engaged use the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a reason for voting for or against somebody? And the overwhelming answer was no. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. But number two... Wesley Bell is going to have the same issue that Steve Roberts had from a purely vote-getting perspective. If Cori Bush wins the black vote like she did against Steve Roberts, then he has no path to victory. Right. She has significant support among the progressive white community. That's the key. Mm-hmm. If, if, if he cannot win the black vote in the first district, he's mm-hmm. not only going to lose, he's going to lose by a margin similar to Steve Roberts. Right. So that's kind of my feeling on that. What's kind of your yeah, thought? Yeah, uh, agree to agree. No, I, I think the same. Um, and that's why I think issues like the infrastructure bill, um, I think, are probably going to be more front and center to Wesley's campaign as it goes on, especially when he's talking to community groups. And, you know, rather than just, you know, speaking in, you know, in a radio setting in front of a <laughs> microphone, I think going out in the community and having conversations, I think, you know, not surprisingly, I think he knows or whoever ends up running against Corey, if other folks get in, will know that, um, you know, that, that that's those are the issues that people are thinking about on a regular basis when they think about who they want their congressperson to be. Now, the last topic I want to talk about is, is abortion mm-hmm. and the abortion initiatives. So I, I I did another lengthy story how there seems to be a real difference of opinion about what is actually going to go on the ballot. I think there's actually three lines of thought. One is that you pursue a more, quote unquote, modest proposal that is exceptions for rape, incest, fatal fetal abnormalities, uh, health of the mother, and then 12 weeks, which is what is being pushed by uh, this Republican communications operative named Jamie Corley. You have another line of thought that the initiative should be 24 weeks are viability, which it, it could be from this other tranche of initiatives that is unrelated to the other one. And then you have like the the other effort that is that you don't put any gestational limit on abortions. I I think that the issue here, though, especially when we're talking about the non-Jamie Corley initiatives, because I think that the Corley, by the time the show airs, I think they will have decided on one and will start gathering signatures for it. Um, But that hasn't been the case with the other 11. It's still kind of stuck in this legal fight about 
ballot summaries and fiscal notes. And the timeline is not is pretty short to yeah. gather signatures. Yeah. And they still have not decided which one of those 11 they're going to do. Right. Is it is, do you have concern that the more expansive approach is not going to have enough time to get signatures this cycle? Um, I, you know, there's precedent. I, my understanding is there's precedent for extending the deadline. I'm sure they'll try to make those arguments. Whether or not it gets extended or not, I think there's a lot of folks who are already trained to gather signatures. There's a lot of money and push behind this. I think you're right, though, that folks need to agree on what it's going to be. I don't think it's an extreme position to, to leave a weak limit off of that. Roe did not have a weak limit, and Roe is incredibly popular. That's what we're trying to get back to. Roe said viability is the marker. Well, then viability should be the marker. Why, why, do we ha- why are we hung up on 6, 12, 15, 18 weeks when when the majority opinion across the country and in these states is Roe is what we want to get back to. But now, I know people want to go further than that and good for them, but let's get what we can pass on the ballot and let's get the signatures now. I think it's important that it that it has language that encapsulates Roe because that's what people are used to. That's what people understand. That's what That was the law of the land in this country from coast to coast for decades. Um, and those are the rights that we want to get back to. Okay. So you're for fetal viability. Correct. Basically. Yes. I've heard the arguments before that the current abortion ban is unpopular. But I also know that there's going to be a lot of organized opposition to this. I think there are a lot of voters in the state who feel abortion is morally wrong and no argument is going to persuade them otherwise. Um, How do you think this campaign will go? Um, Whatever whatever the actual uh, proposal is, how do you think it will actually go before voters. I don't think there's any more. I don't think there's a higher number or higher concentration of voters in the state of Missouri um, that have a, you know, no exceptions whatsoever approach to this issue as there are in Kentucky or in Kansas. Um, I, I think we can see this play out. We, we can see what's going to happen. Um, folks who have experienced pregnancy, you know, women who've been pregnant and experienced how complicated that is, uh, parents who've had daughters and experienced how complicated it is, brothers who've had sisters and experienced how complicated it is, understand that they don't want politicians like Jay Ashcroft making those decisions. They want their doctor making those decisions, and that's how it's going to go. It's going to pass. Thank you so much for coming on Politically Speaking which is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our stories at stlpr.org. And Representative, how could people find you on the internet where you want to be found? <laughs> well, I guess I would say X or Twitter. I don't know if that's really my preferred method of communication, but it's Mel Rep Mackey if you want to find me there. Otherwise, just look at my house page and email me. That's where I prefer to have conversations. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. Politically Speaking is produced by Sarah Kellogg, Rachel Lipman, and me, Jason Rosenbaum. The show is edited by Fred Ehrlich. Read all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking by searching the term Politically Speaking on Apple Podcasts. Sponsored by the Sue and Lynn Schneider Charitable Fund. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.